0: There's an old English proverb that says a way to a man's heart is through his stomach, which I feel very uh, related to. But actually Solomon disagrees. He says the way to a man's heart is through his wallet. So I want you to get your purse or wallet out. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to dip into it. You may feel f- stirred to later. And, and I want you to listen to it. You think, oh no, it's just, just listen to it. What is it telling you? What is it telling you about... Uh, Your money, and maybe it's full of receipts, like mine. It did have money in, but I've got a daughter uh, who likes ice cream, so that didn't work. (laughs) So uh, it tells you your money, uh, your wallet talks to you. It tells you about your life. I mean, I don't know what this person's purse says. It says Chanel. Yeah, it says, I have Chanel, so uh, I'm important, and please love me. Um, Phil Moore, whose little commentary on Solomon said this, it said, a person's real statement of faith is their bank statement. Do you like that? A person's real statement of faith is their bank statement. In other words, you might say, I believe this about God, I believe this about God, I believe this about God. But what does your bank statement say you really value? My bank statement says, I value the MOT of my car. I value putting new bushes in my garden. I value playing golf. Uh, it do, does does it say that I value God? Does it say I value others? That's interesting. What does your bank statement say? Randy Olkons in his book, Money, Possessions and Eternity, an old book now, maybe 20 years old, great book to get, Money, Possessions and Eternity, says, money is the true test of our character. It's an index of our spiritual life. Our use of money tells a story. In a sense, how we relate to money and possessions is the story of our life. What you do with your money says so much about what you value and what's important. And Solomon wants to shake you out of that this morning and I am with him heart and soul. So I'm going to read some verses from Proverbs 11. There's a number of other verses uh, around money scattered, but he does kind of focus in Proverbs 11 uh, in these verses around money. So let's uh, let's read those. Wealth is worthless in the day of judgment. Straight in there, isn't he? What matters in eternity? Wealth is worthless in the day of judgment, but righteousness delivers. A kind-hearted woman gains honor Look at your wife or partner and say, you've got honour. But ruthless men gain only money. Only money. A wicked person earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. Truly the righteous eternal life, but whoever pursues evil, and the hint there is it's about evil gain, money finds death. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes, others will be refreshed. Those who trust in riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like the green leaf. Lord Jesus, we do pray as we look at this topic of money. Lord, we're going to feel uncomfortable. You want us to feel uncomfortable, because you're after our hearts, and where our hearts are, our money's there, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that our hearts would, and our monies would line up and say that we put you first. I pray, Lord Jesus, in a society that's so wrapped up in materialism and image and finance, I pray, Lord Jesus, we would be free from the love of money. Amen. Yes, so as I say, Solomon's putting shock tactics to try to grab your attention. The first thing that perhaps is challenging is he says it's only money. It's only money. Money's only money. You've got to, we've got to say money is neutral. It might, if you listen to this talk or if you came in halfway through, you might think actually I'm saying that money's bad. Money is neutral. You can have money. You can earn money. You can have lots of money, and it's okay. It's not about a simplistic kind of left-wing politics as saying, well, you know, if you're poor, you're good, and if you're rich, you're bad. Nor is it right-wing politics that says, if you got money, it's because you've worked hard and you deserve it, and if you haven't got money, it's because you're lazy and feckless. Uh, Solomon's saying neither of those, he's saying money is neutral. It can be used for great purposes. It can be used to change lives and change the world, but it also can be used for evil. Jesus says the love of money is the root of all evil, or the root of great evil. In other words, loving money, it's putting money in its wrong place that really is the killer. And so you might feel, I don't love money, but the fact is money will want you to love it. So Solomon wants us to look deeper. He says, money's wages are deceptive. There's a truth about money that it promises much, but delivers little. We're too easily deceived by money, coerced to climb the ladder of career and success, sometimes with greed and energy, desiring wages. In fact, this picture, I thought I've titled Ladder with Money. This comes off a betting website. How interesting. There's a betting website that says if you climb the ladder, if you put the stakes down, if you spin the wheel, if you do whatever, if you climb that ladder, up there is happiness and riches beyond compare. Your your, your workplaces will do that. If you have money, you must climb. It says, come on now, climb the ladder. You will be happy if you go up another rung, if you get another promotion and more money. If you climb, you'll be happy. Come on, climb. The money wants your energy. It wants your time. It wants you to worship it. Jesus called it mammon. In other words, he personifies it because it, it's almost like this personal, this personal kind of evil that wants to get hold of you. So, although it's money behind it, there's this power that wants you to get climbing, wants you to chase after money. I've said it many times. There's very few of us will get to the top of the ladder when it comes to money. Very few of us will make the Sunday Times Rich List. Probably none of you here. But the reality is, so we keep climbing. We keep believing the lie of money that actually it's going to deliver. It's going to deliver. But it's only a few very wealthy people who get to the top, and as I've said many times before, who realize when you get to the top, there's nothing there. It's not just poor people that kill themselves for lack of money. The rich will take their own lives for abundance of money. Because they believe for all their life that if they had money, they would be happy. And then, when all your dreams come true, as, as George Michael says, what has a boy got to do? There's nothing. Money is a deceptive idol. Jesus talks about it as if an idol. It's something that you, it demands that you bow down to it. It wants you to sacrifice your family and your time for it. It wants you to offer your integrity and sometimes even your faith in Jesus on the altar. To put money first. The pursuit of idolatry delivers, as Solomon says, only emptiness and enslavement. The only wages it's paid are debt and death. If your bank statement is a big, big, minor sign, if you are in debt, that may be, it may be a product of the unfortunate circumstances of life. But it may say something about your attitude to money. Because money promises much, but in the end, it leaves us empty. As I, uh, as in, the, in the reading we had, actually, ultimately, we all know that money is worthless. When you stand before God in eternity, and he passes judgment on your life, your money will count for nothing. You may have had money in life and you may have had to to bribe your way in, pay your way in, get yourself to where you want to go because you've got money and you've been used to that. But before God, it says in Romans, you stand naked. No money, no nice clothes, no image, no wallet. You cannot bribe God with your money. Righteousness, says Solomon, is the only currency that God is interested in. Now, we nod our heads, don't we, and think, yes, now I'm okay, actually, because actually the people, the real people with money, are those hedge fund managers, they're the ones with real money issues, or it's the FTSE 100 100 chief executive who earns a thousand times more than the person that cleans his office, they're the ones who've got problems with money, it's not us, because we're not rich, and most of us are not poor. We're not the ones who've got problems with money. We think we're okay. ha! Ah, but money's wages are deceptive. Money is incredibly deceptive. Jesus says this, Watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Money has this way of blinding you to, its, uh, to your addiction for it. You don't see it. Jesus says, watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. In other words, you can sometimes be addicted to chasing money and you don't even know it. Tim Keller, and I had to use Tim Keller and you'll see why for uh, this quote. Tim Keller in his beautiful book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, puts it in your lap like this. It says, watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of grief. This greed, sorry, Grief, I don't know I said greed. Greed, watch out and guard your life against all kinds of greed. This is a remarkable statement. Think of other, another traditional sin that the Bible warns against, adultery. Jesus didn't say, be careful you're not committing adultery. He doesn't have to. When you're in bed with someone else who's not your spouse, you know it. It's brilliant, isn't it? Halfway through, I mean the mind boggles, but halfway through you don't say, oh wait a minute, I think I'm committing adultery. You know it's adultery. Yet, even though it's clear that this world is filled with greed and materialism, almost nobody thinks it's true of them that they're greedy. We are all in self denial about this. We're all in denial about it. Money is so powerful that actually it takes hold of your heart and subtly blinds you to what it's doing. It attaches itself to your inner anxieties and desires. So you don't feel money's the issue, but money subtly attaches itself to those things that you feel deeply are really important. And that's how you know what your issues are. It attaches itself to those desires and anxieties and it subtly wants you to put itself ahead of everything else. The creeping idolatry of money is not consigned to rich, multinational kind of chief executives or the poor. Actually, we're all subject to that. Rich and poor, we're all subject to this blindness where we don't know how obsessed we are about money. Fillmore quotes a guy called Robert J. Kraken, And he says this, Dre McCracken, get to know two things about people, how they earn their money and how they spend it. You will then have a clue of their character. You'll have a searchlight that shows the inner recesses of their soul. You'll know all you need to know about their values, their motives, their driving desires, even their religion. In other words, if you really, really get to the heart of what people do and think and feel about their money, you'll get to the heart with their real motives. I want to give you three. People like money because they want to be in control of the world and their life. Their inner anxiety is that the world is an unpredictable place. And you know the kind of proverb is you've got to save for a rainy day. You better have some savings. You better put some money aside for a rainy day. Such people who are doing this want to have money in, uh, alongside so that if the world offers them something difficult, I've got money to trust in. I've got money to feel secure in. I can control my world because if I lose my job, I've got money and no one can touch me. If I lose my health, I can find the best health care. I am in control. I want to hoard up my money. Making sure it's safely saved and invested because I want to feel in control. You will do that. You will put money away more and more and more. My grandfather on my mother's side had, well, in excess of millions of pounds, in excess of a million pounds, you know, so multiple millions of pounds, but he never had enough. I remember him crying in his late 70s, well, when I die, the taxman's going to take it all. He spent his whole life getting rich. But the bottom line was he couldn't control his world. He couldn't control his world. Sickness and death came to him. Jesus points the finger at those who look to, contr- uh, look to money for control, life's uncertainties, and he says, look to God. You know this familiar verse for many of you. Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or about your body or what you wear. It is, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Jesus is saying, don't worry about money, however much you have, you cannot control your life, you cannot look both ways, you cannot look both ways on this, you cannot say, I am trusting God with my life, but at the same time say, I'm storing away my money for a rainy day, now don't get me wrong, it's not wrong to save, but ultimately, where is the issue? If you've saved a lot of money for a rainy day and the preacher says to you, I want you to give it all away, your reaction will tell me which way you are looking. That's what Jesus says, not me. Solomon says about those that look for money for their security, he says that the wealth of the rich is a fortified city. They Imagine its walls are too high to scale, but before it he said the name of the Lord is a fortified tower, the righteous run into it and they are saved, which tower are you in? Are you saying I am going to stand in the Lord's tower, I'm going to put my trust in him or are you going to say I'm going to build for myself a tower of wealth that's so high, the walls are so high no one can touch me they think they think its walls are too high to scale But Jesus says, rust and moth scale the walls. Sickness and death scale the walls. You cannot put your money in place of God for security. If you have money, God first, or the ability to to earn money, what does your bank statement say about where your security really lies? I'm saying this to me as well. It's very easy to do the maths. I'm with First Direct and there's a little, uh, a little app that's on their website that you can click that will divide up your income. I didn't do it actually, I should have done. Divide up your income into what categories you spend it on. What does it tell you about what you're really putting your trust in? Am I putting my security in my kids' education? Am I putting my security in I must have a house, my bricks and mortar? I'm at that age now, am I putting my security in my pension pot? How much goes into my pension pot? Into my mortgage? To my kids' education? How much do I give to God? It's a simple calculation, isn't it? Are you storing up treasure in heaven or HSBC? Now, some want money for control. Some want money for power and influence. These people spend their money. So the first lot are quite frugal, they're quite tight. They don't spend their money because they're hoarding it up to be safe. The second lot want money because it gives them power and influence. They desire money and they spend their money to control people. They spend their money, but the bottom line is, you owe me. You know those people who, when they give you, you owe them. You've got that auntie that used to give you money and you know that you owed them and they'd complain that you never wrote that thank you letter or that you never were nice at how much. My, my grandmother, married to the one who had billions, would always give us stuff but she'd always make our family feel, you know, we're keeping you. You are us. You better be nice to us. You keep your religion but we'll give you money. There's always some emotional strings to attach to these things when people part with their money. Proverbs 17.8 says this, "A, a bribe is seen as a charm by the one who gives it. They think success will come at every turn. It's interesting, Solomon says it's a charm. I don't want to get too heavy and too deep, but the nature of witchcraft is manipulative control. Satan worships something different, but witchcraft is about manipulative control. Freemasonry. You're joining the club together, we'll look after you, you look after me. Freemasonry is manipulative control. It's witchcraft. The boss who likes to remind you who pays your wages. He wants to manipulate to your sense of indebtedness that you're going to turn up, you're going to do more, you're going to give more. That such a boss is after your time. He's after your energy. And if you're a woman or a man, maybe a woman, he wants your body. He does. How many affairs do bosses have with secretaries? It's power and control. Church leaders, perhaps, sometimes with congregations, power and control. Let's not pretend it doesn't happen. Such people want to be king. They will not have God as their king. We've got no king but but money. But the reality is you can't be your own king, because subtly your money's ruling you. You're not ruling, your money's ruling you. Some people want power and influence. The last group I want to touch on is some people want to spend their money to gain approval and appreciation. They've obviously never heard the Beatles song, which is, Money Can't Buy Me Love. Okay, they use, such people use their money to put themselves at the center of the social circle. Who's this? It's the Wolf of Wall Street, isn't it? Don't watch the film. (laughs) I have not watched it. (laughs) My son said he went on a Barcelona trip to basketball and said, you know what film was on the coach? The Wolf of Wall Street. (laughs) Good lad, Zach was like shocked and so he should have been. Okay. (laughs) The Wolf of Wall Street. And, and you know, the, the thing about this is people who spend their money, their clothes look sharp. They're nicely, subtly labelled. There's something about a person who's got money, their hair says money, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed that? People with money, their hair says money. You know, I mean, my hair, I have no money, so it says no money, no hair. <laughs> Some of you, uh, there's very few of you, your hair say money here. <laughs> but you know, one or two, your hair says money. You know what it's like. I'm not going to say the style because you're going to say, "Oh, but you notice it, don't you? Their hair says money. Their body is attractive or plastic, but you know it's going to look good because everybody is about what people think of me. These people know how to spend their money on having a good time because their money is their identity. Their money is their identity. This is a big one in Cheltenham. If you've ever felt the need, if you're going shopping in town to think, I better smarten up. Hands up. Well done. You're honest. Flo. Well, you do, don't you? In Salford, people would go to the shop in their trackies and, you know, in their slippers, in their pajamas. They'd be out the shop. You don't know that in Cheltenham, do you? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. No, no. I even, it's funny, I, my car was in for MOT this week, and I felt that subtle desire to have it cleaned. before I took it in. I thought, they're just fixing my car. But I thought, it's so dirty and grubby. What are they going to think of me? You know it, it's Cheltenham. What people think of you is everything. It's a culture or stronghold in this town. How you dress, what you drive, where you eat. Jesus says this, we quoted it before. Jesus said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And then he adds, a person's life does not consist of the abundance of their possessions. That word consists is basically saying the essence of your life. Is it the abundance of your possessions or not? In other words, there's no self without wealth. I like that. I wrote that myself. There's no self for these people without wealth. In other words, if you take a person's wealth away, they are nothing. That's what happens when the Wall Street crash happened in 1929 when the, uh, the economy tanked. What did rich people do? threw themselves out of buildings because without their wealth there was no self. Money is too fleeting, too deceptive to put your identity in. Proverbs 23, 4 says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust in your own cleverness. We've got some clever people here. Cast but a glance at riches And they are gone. They surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Very Harry Potter, that last bit, isn't it? But you know, there's a sense of money is so fleeting. If your identity is in your money, if you're looking for money for approval, appreciation, or power, or influence, or control, or safety, it is a foolish place to trust. Let's get this finished. The way to sort this out, there's only one way to sort this out. I want you to say this word after me. The way to control, the 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 God-even way to master the controlling power of greed is generosity. Say generosity. That is the only antidote. Sound money management is not the antidote. If you're in debt, sorting out, that doing a little payment to cap here and there is one sense, that's good. A little discipline is helpful, but the antidote is generosity. You have to be. I was talking to, uh, to, to somebody at the beginning, and um, they were saying, oh, you know, you should, you should just give a little bit, or what about, you need to think about these poor students that, that have got, you know, they're basically racking up debt, aren't they? And the idea is, well, well because I'm in debt, I can't, I've, got no, I've got no money, I can't give anything. But the bottom line is that that actually you do have money. Rich, poor, student, in debt, you do have money. And you can be generous. When I was giving Zach X amount of money, that's a little line on my bank statement for his university course, and then he told me how much he was tithing to his local church. I went, really? And he just said to me, Dad, you've got to trust God with your money. I was like, fair enough. Okay, I'm going to stop your money then. (laughs) because I wanted him to trust me, didn't I? Because I wanted influence and power and control. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, though, generosity sorts it out. I don't believe if Zach continues to put money, put God first in his life and give generously to God and others, I don't believe I ever have a problem with his money. It's a lie that says, I'll sort something out, but I'm ahead of myself. Um, one person says Proverbs 11, which we read earlier. One person gives freely, yet gains more. Another person unholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes, others will be refreshed. People curse the one who holds grain, but they pray pray God's blessing on the one who's willing to sell. Solomon wants to persuade us That being generous with our money is the path to true prosperity. And just be clear here, he doesn't say, give away your riches and you'll get richer. Sorry, God TV watchers. No, he doesn't say that. What you will get is if you give away your riches, you will have God first. You'll be blessed by him. You won't be tempted to look both ways, to live in the wrong tower. How tightly, God first are your fists and my fists holding on to money? Solomon says, hanging on to money brings poverty, cursing, and trouble. But giving it away until it hurts, until it sacrificially hurts, topples the altars of the false god of money in our lives. If we can't give away, if we can't be generous, we'll never be blessed. So where's your first bit going to go? And you might think, oh, I knew he's going here. It's in the Bible. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says, Honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, and your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim with new wine. Now you might think, well, I've got no crop, so I'm good. I'm all good. <laughs> I don't have any first fruits. You know, the apple tree in my garden, I just let them fall on the ground, I'm good. You know, he can have a few of those windfalls if he wants. No, it actually, in an agrarian society... What the, 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 the thing was, that the, they lived as subsistence farmers. In other words, the food they ate was what they grew. The, they sold a little to pay their rent, and they'd keep a little bit for seed. In other words, they subsistence farmers. They lived on the margins. They lived on the edge. A bad harvest wiped them out. But actually, in God's kingdom economy, the culture was you would give your first fruits away. Now that was a tenth of what came in. So what would happen is, they'd harvest, the start to harvest the fields, let's do, to make the maths easy, let's say they had ten fields. They'd harvest the first field, and all of that, all of that, would be given into the temple of God. While the other nine fields were still unharvest, unharvested. Because they're saying, actually, I'm not trusting the, the, the look of the harvest in the nine fields. I'm not trusting my economic prospects. I'm trusting God with my money. I'm putting that first. That's the first fruits. That means in your situation that you, you need to say, what am I doing? Does God get my first fruits? The law of tithing, in one sense, giving a tenth to God, doesn't apply to you. So we can all say, well, that's great then. I don't need to give nothing. No, you do. You do. You should give more than 10. If the law said give 10, freely you should give more. Because it's the story of your heart. For most of you, and I say this unapologetically, it will mean at the start of the month, you'll set up a standing order or you'll write a cheque for a tenth of your gross money, before the tax man's had it, before you've harvested that field, you'll put a tenth of your money you put it into a local church. Now you think it's difficult for me because I, in one sense I earn my money from the church. But I've always done it. Well I didn't always do it actually because I used to be shocking with my money. When I was uh, first started dating Naomi, we went to buy a, uh, an engagement ring and the following night I said well I'll take her out for dinner. I put my uh, card in the wall, and it ate my card. <laughs> Naomi said, "What have I just done? <laughs> Why have I said yes to this guy?" When I went to ask Naomi's dad if I could, uh, if we could get married, I, did, I took her with me because I thought I'm not going to marry him; he's far too scary. Uh, <laughs> he said, this, "He said two things. He said he's in debt, and he's old. He may get out of debt, but he's never going to get any younger." <laughs> But the thing was, I thought, I have to deal with this. Because I spent all my money on fun, on approval, on whatever. I never gave to God. I had huge debts. I determined, at that point, I am not going that way. I'm going to put God first. So, top slice now, always 10th, more than a 10th before the tax man's taken his cut, before the mortgage company's had their cut, before your car loan, your holiday fund, your clothing allowance, first for God. If you don't like it, maybe, maybe you've got a problem with your money. Seriously. You say, oh, churches are after your money. Do you know what? Money's always after you. Who are you going to give it to? It's interesting, I, I'm not immune from this, in a long way, um, about last June, our church finances I, I will get this down quickly, uh, the church finances were in, in a mess. We'd tank in, it was going down, we were, we were, we were burning money, and I uh, started to grump to my father-in-law, who's good with money, and you know, I'd struggled in the past, and started to grump to him about, about you lot. Sorry, I did. I'd got about two senses out of my mouth, and he'd said, Howard, be quiet. You can hear him, can't you? you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking in the wrong place. Don't look at the people, look to God. And then I thought about it and prayed about it and thought, do you know why might some of you might look to your circumstances? Because I'm tempted to do that as well. We have to look to God. We decided as leaders that we would give away 20% of our income. In that moment where we had no money, we decided in that moment the way to do it was to be generous. So we decided in that moment to give away 20% of our income by 2020. Now that's foolishness in the world's economy because you can't pay your bills but you have got to give more away. But in God's economy it's wisdom. In God's economy it's wisdom. Now it did mean that we, one or two people had to say, actually we'll, we'll, we'll put our standing orders up. Because if the church is going to give away 10%, 20%, some of you are going to have to join us to make it happen. We don't have surplus, but God's not short of cash. So we're going to do it anyway. We're going to give him the first fruits. Not after we've gathered in the harvest to see how much we've got left over, but the first fruits. Let me just give you two things, seriously, and then um, I'll get down. Haggai 1 is a really challenging verse. Haggai 1. This is what it says. This is what the Lord Almighty says, God first. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your full fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Give careful thought to your ways go up into the mountains and bring timber and build my house so that i may take pleasure in it and be honored says the lord you expected much but see it turned out little what you brought home i blew away why declares the lord because of my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own challenging stuff God is saying if you, want to get your, if you want to live a life of never enough, never enough money, never enough clothes, never enough food, never enough things for yourself, if you want to busy yourself with your own house, then that's fine. You can live a never enough life. You're going to put your wages into a person with holes in and you'll never have enough. If you say, I'm going to busy myself with my house, God says it there, right there. He's not lying, you'll not have enough. It's almost that you can dream your own dreams. It says, they expected much, but it turned out little. The people who are always just building their own house and high, holding tight to their own money, they expect much, but it turns out nothing. If you want to do something significant with your life, your money has to say, I'm going to live bravely and boldly for God. Think about it. First fruits of your treasure, your time, your talents, they need to go to God's church. Jesus paid a huge price to have you in this church. Paul says this. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 8, it says, See also that you excel in this grace of giving. Am I, not, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you might, through his poverty, become rich. That's what we've just celebrated. We celebrated Jesus becoming the King of glory who had all wealth, becoming poor and emptying himself and pouring himself and giving itself away so you could know him. How are we doing? But God wants it also to give to the poor. I'm going to read these to you because after you've given to God, there needs to be somewhere in your budget that you give to the poor. You don't give God's money to the poor. You give his money to him and then you give some of your own money to the poor. Those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to them receive many curses. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to God, puts money in his bank, as it were, and he will reward them for what they have done. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out, but not be answered. The generous will, find, will themselves be blessed for they share their food with the poor. What is our attitude to others without money? Do we invite those people around for food? Do we care for them? Do we look out to them? Do we give them a lift? What are we like? Do we invite those people that invite us back, says Jesus? Or do we invite those people who are poor? Two things. Last bit on Proverbs 11, 28. Last verse I read says, Those who trust in riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like the green leaf. In other words, your story of a life is the story of two trees. If you trust in riches, your tree will be like that on the left. Everything will end up bare and empty. The world says if you hold on to your money... You're going to have lots. The Bible says if you hold on to your money, your life is always going to be like that. It's never enough. It's going to be that Narnia. It's going to be ever winter, never Christmas. That's your life. If you don't trust God with your money. But the righteous, those who put their trust in Jesus, will thrive like a green leaf tree. In other words, your life will have fruit on it. If you give to the poor if you give to God, if you're generous. Let me just read this. Mark fourteen three. A woman came with an alabaster jar of expensive per- perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Some of those present were saying, what a waste. What a waste of money. Leave her alone, said Jesus. She's done a beautiful thing for me. I tell you the truth, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It's almost as if that picture is saying that we've all got this alabaster jar. We've all got this receptacle that is our life, that's filled with all our earthly treasures. You know, what happens, what we normally do, we occasionally do, we'll... We'll take a little bit and we'll pour it out on friends or family. We might even take a few drops and text £10 to God First Church. Whoops. We're we're very careful to keep this alabaster jar full. Because we might need it for a mortgage, we might need it for a house, we might need it for what God's doing. But actually, Jesus says, when the gospel is preached throughout the world, what's going to be remembered is not those who held on to their alabaster jar and said, I've got to be really careful to be, look after my money. But it's the one who took that alabaster jar and smashed it. So the perfume fell out and, the, the, and poured it on Jesus' feet. Pour, actually, Jesus said, she poured the perfume. She broke it and poured it all out. She said, Jesus, you can have the whole thing. Empty me out on you. She didn't go up just a tenth, Jesus. Oh, steady. That's what the law says. Ken Gear says this. Finish with this band. You need to come back. Jesus came to Earth to break an alabaster jar, His own body, broken for you. He came to break an alabaster jar for you and I, and Mary that night came to break one for Him. It's a jar. He never regretted breaking, nor did she, nor will you. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.